This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You are listening to the Thoughts from a Page podcast. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I'd love to talk about books with anyone and everyone. While listening to my podcast, you will hear author interviews, behind-the-scenes conversations about other aspects of the publishing world, themed discussions with other book lovers, and more. For more book recommendations and a complete list of every podcast episode, check out my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. This week, I'd like to ask anyone who enjoys this podcast to please review it wherever you listen, if you have a few minutes. Thanks so much to those that already have. It does not need to be a long review. Just a couple of sentences would be so useful. Reviews really help the podcast find new listeners and bump it up in the various algorithms. I greatly appreciate your support as I continue to grow the show. Today, I am chatting with Lisa Barr about Women on Fire. Lisa is the award-winning author of three novels. In addition, she has served as an editor for the Jerusalem Post, managing editor of Today's Chicago Woman, managing editor of Moment Magazine, and editor-reporter for the Chicago Sun-Times. Lisa has been featured on Good Morning America and the Today Show and lives in the Chicago area with her husband and three daughters. I loved Woman on Fire, and it is one of my March Buzz Reads picks. Sharon Stone just recently optioned the rights to produce and star in the film Adaptation. I hope you enjoy our conversation. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Welcome, Lisa. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you, Cindy? I also am doing great, and I'm so excited to talk with you because I love, love, love Woman on Fire. Oh, thank you so much. I I saw you posted something, and I was so touched and excited about it. Well, and I was just looking it up on Goodreads because I read it a while ago, so I was just making sure I had all the details in my mind and seeing what other people had said, and you have a 4.7 rating on Goodreads. Wow. Do you know that I haven't looked at it? Because I did in the beginning just a little bit, but it's almost that nervous feeling before the book has come out, and I just sort of want to stay on track, but my husband does look at it, so I kind of hear through him a little bit how things are going. So yeah, I was very happy to hear that. Yeah, that's an amazing score. So I thought, well, I'm very impressed with that. And I understand it because I loved it. But I can't wait to talk about it. But before we do that, why don't you tell me a little bit about Woman on Fire for those that won't have read it yet? So Woman on Fire is a gripping tale of a young, savvy journalist who's 24 years old, and she's from Chicago. And she gets embroiled in a major, dangerous international art scandal, and it's centered around a Nazi-looted masterpiece. 
So how did you come up with the idea for this one? There's sort of a lot of different components. Obviously, the Nazi looted art is fascinating. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious how you got involved in that. But also, you know, a particular missing painting, I'm assuming you created this painting, and then your main characters. Yes. Okay. So my debut novel is called Fugitive Colors. And that came out in about 2013. And that the theme of it was stolen art, but it was really relating to the artists in World War II. And so I did four years of research on stolen art before I even allowed my pen to paper. And so I sort of had, you know, you develop an expertise when you're doing all this research. And after I did Fugitive Colors, it was very, you know, heavy, so much work. I needed something a little lighter. So I jumped genres and I went to a book called The Unbreakables, which is very sexy women's fiction. But then I was itching to get back to my roots. And I am a news junkie. My background, I've been a journalist, uh, you know, here in the States and abroad for about 25, almost 30 years. And I'm, you know, a news junkie. And so when I find a story that really, really moves me, I actually have this visceral feeling in my body. And I know that's the one. So in brief, in 2013, there was discovered in Munich in a rundown apartment, this man who was a recluse, and he was harboring 1,500 masterpieces. And we're talking the likes of Picasso and Matisse in his stove, in his food cabinets. Well, it turns out that he is the son of Hitler's art thief, Hildebrand Gerlitt. And so it was the huge art scandal, and it kind of blew away the whole art world. They had never seen anything like this in decades. So I thought, hmm, this would be a great place to begin my book. And what if I developed a character who robbed the robber, so to speak, with stolen art? You know, is that a crime or is that justice? And then I sort of from there began to develop my characters, the young journalist going after this painting, the ruthless art dealer with, you know, a past of her own, and all the characters wrapped around finding this masterpiece that hasn't seen the light of day for nearly 80 years. So that's how it developed. Oh my goodness. I don't think I'm familiar with that story. What did they do with all of those pieces that they found in his apartment? So it gets very scandalous. And basically, you know, a lot of people who are looking were looking for their paintings. In fact, someone that I met through Fugitive Colors, my first book, she had a, a Matisse that was in the stove. And it was it took her about nine years and she was able to get the painting back. But a lot of people had a lot of interest in this. And so what happens in the middle of this whole scandal, he dies and he bequeaths this entire treasure trove to this small, like nondescript, no one really heard of it, museum. And they said that they weren't going to keep any Nazi looted paintings. So just very recently, there was a big revealing after about, you know, eight years of harboring it, uh, harboring these paintings. Uh, I think about 40 of them, they said, were Nazi looted art and many other others they were still looking into. So this story is not over, far from over. But that's where that's at with the Gurlitt collection. In my book, it's called the Geisler collection. And so I based it, you know, a lot of the details are, are of course, changed and fictionalized, but I based that stolen treasure trove 
on this whole real life story. In addition, I have an artist in my first book that was sort of a fictional founder of the expressionist movement in Germany. So in Woman on Fire, it is his painting before he was murdered by the Nazis, his last painting, which is considered a masterpiece. So I kind of tied it in. You know, those who love fugitive colors will be excited to see sort of what happens with Woman on Fire. Completely different books, not a sequel, but there are some tie-ins. Little bit of an Easter egg. Yes, an Easter egg. Exactly, Cindy, an Easter egg. So trying to come up with what the painting looked like, was that fun? Uh, yes, I, but but I I knew it. I saw it. I smelled it. I breathed it. You know, I, I knew exactly what the painting uh, looked like. But what I wanted to do is slowly reveal it to the reader. You know, obviously, as you get into it, you know, everyone has their take on the painting, except the one thing that is, you know, obviously the painting, and it's, there's no spoilers here, is called Woman on Fire. So for me, I wanted to develop this beautiful woman engulfed in flames and giving it sort of the expressionist brushstroke, you know, to it. And so, you know, very interesting in the expressionist movement, which Hitler and the Nazis, you know, they despised it because it was everything they were not very chaotic and, 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 you know, frenetic and uh, up for interpretation. So the expressionism is how art makes you feel not what you're seeing, how it makes you feel. So that was really important in the line of the story, that it was that type of painting, for me at least. Well, I liked that. And I felt like you made me be able to visualize the painting eventually, which I just thought was wonderful. Right. I'm so happy to hear that. Good. Well, back to your research. What was the most interesting thing you discovered while you were doing your research? Well, obviously, the the whole the more I poured through this Gurlitz story, that was, you know, fascinating. Lots of different things have come up. As I've been researching, you know, there's been at least six in the last, I would say, six, seven weeks, major stories in the New York Times about stolen art or someone getting their painting back or a, mu a museum revealing that they are indeed holding on to this stolen art. And even last week, the Supreme Court of the United States is hearing a stolen art case. And so I think the most interesting thing to answer your question is that this is a story that took place 80 years ago, and yet it is still alive and vibrant. And really, the art and the assets are the very last thing that exists in terms of World War II, because, you know, obviously with time, the Nazis have all died out, and so have the survivors you know, for the most part. So this is what lives on. And for me, writing about this, I, I felt like there was like a motor inside me. You know, I just felt it so deeply writing this aspect of, you know, say World War II fiction. That's just crazy and very sad as well that those things are still going on 80 years later. Yeah, I agree with you. It's It's sad. And a lot of people who, you know, they can... They know their artwork is hanging in, you know, X, Y, or Z's collection or in some famous museum. And just the amount of legal work to try to get their painting back that belonged to their family has been such a struggle. So um, it is very interesting. Yes, and probably very painful for them. Yes, yes, I agree. So are you a plotter or a pantser? You had some <laughs> twists and turns in this one. And I was curious if they came up as you wrote 
or if you kind of laid it all out ahead of time or how that works for you? So I am a full-on hybrid. I have to plot because uh, when you're doing research and it's historical, you need to hit certain plot points. So if you could see my dining room and my kitchen table, it is covered. In fact, on my Instagram, I do have pictures of it. So if you want to peek at it, you could see it. But I, I cover my table with cards, sticky notes, you know, everything. And I sort of, you know, have my whole outline, you know, where I want things to go. And then I sit down and I start writing. And then the characters or the story takes me different places. I think two things I differ from a lot of writers. I do not write just like an ugly first draft. I write like a pretty first draft, meaning I cannot move on from a various chapter until it's in great form. So I really, by the time I get through my first draft, it might be like someone else's third draft of the book. And so that I do differently. Also, the type of writer I am, you know, as I mentioned, I had historical and I, about women's fiction, and this is very suspenseful. I am what's known as a, a genre jumper. And so it's really important to me that if I see or feel a story that I'm not pigeonholed to a corner, like I must write historical fiction or I must write this. I need to write what I feel. That's when I feel like my writing is at its best. So I am a hybrid all the way through. So as you're writing, you've got it all mapped out, kind of the basic flow that the story is going to take, but then you get to a part and you think, oh, maybe this twist would be nice here. And you kind of add it in and figure out how that works for the rest of the book. Exactly. And, and you know, uh, you, can, um, you talk to many writers. Once we're in the zone and we're inside the character's head, you know, you're all in. So I sort of lose myself and I'm in whether it's, you know, uh, my ruthless character. Uh, in this case, it's Margot de Laurent. Uh, she's a, you know, a very unscrupulous, art dealer. And I probably really enjoyed writing her the most. It was a lot of fun. And then my, my protagonist, Jules Roth, is the young journalist. So I was able to really put my younger self sort of when I was, you know, idealistic and I was a first time journalist out there, you know, now I'm seasoned and crusty and jaded. In her eyes, I remember that feeling of getting to the truth no matter what sort of before I had my kids, being fearless and going places I would never go now to get a story. But then it's just, everything was for the story. So that was kind of really fun for me to, you know, dig deep and pull that up again and go back there to write her. It's, it's very interesting when you're in it. I think even anyone who is a full-on plotter, once they're in the zone of their characters, things, it just changes up. You can't go exactly to a plot or to an outline. It just moves and changes. I think that's right, because you'll have different ideas as you're developing different characters. Exactly. But there are certain authors, like Jane Harper, who does an incredibly detailed outline. I mean, she starts from the beginning with her outline, and her outline is like so many pages. It is pretty much almost like the complete scaffolding for the book, and then she just fills it in. So it goes well beyond, you know, an outline where you're then filling in the details. It's almost like she kind of drafts it all in outline form and then yes. writes the story. But I think for most people, yes, you're as you're going, you're going to probably 
think, oh, I should have them do this, or maybe you're, you know, they're telling me they they would do this, or however it's going to work. Uh, yes, exactly. I have a, another writer friend, uh, B. A. Shapiro. She did the Art Forger, Barbara Shapiro. She is extremely detailed outliner, you know, and has the whole rhythm and the algorithms, and it's really unbelievable to see what she does and how she develops her outline. I totally respect that. It's just not how I can write, but I, I totally respect that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, to me, that's the fascinating part is that right. you can take somebody on that end all the way to the full-on pantser, and then <laughs> everybody's somewhere in between. I mean, nobody has the exact same way that they write, which is wonderful because it means there's a million ways to do it correctly. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. I agree. So Margot is your favorite character to write. Who is your least favorite? My least favorite? Hmm. God. Least favorite would be, you know, I have this one character, Wyatt Ross, and he's made it big in, you know, Silicon Valley and kind of came back and became a hacker for Margot and does all these sort of terrible things. And I, I don't like him. I would say that I don't like him at all. But so that would, I mean, I have characters in the book who are, you know, despicable, but I love writing them. Uh, Wyatt Ross, I just don't like him, but he was, he was a necessary character to make her whole, you know, everything work for Margot, to make what she does that's off the books work. Exactly. She needed him for her business. Yeah, yes, exactly. exactly. Well, how about coming up with the title for this one? How did that come about? Uh, the title was mine. I know a lot of times when it gets to the publishing house, it changes. But I knew from the get-go that it was going to be the painting, the name of the painting. So once I had the image of the painting in my mind, the title, what probably took me just a few minutes to come up with, I said, oh, it is Woman on Fire. And I was praying after I turned it in, oh, please don't change my title. Please don't change my title. Because I really felt it with every inch of me. And also, Woman on Fire is sort of a double entendre in the book. It is not just the painting, but really the women in the book. So for me, it, it just expressed everything. And that, that really worked for me. It could be Jules. It could be Margot. It could be the painting. And, and it's all three. Right. And it's, and it's even the woman in the painting. Right. And so I'm meaning not just the, the painting, but the actual woman herself. So uh, that, that to me was, it was the title, uh, you know, that just completely went with the book. Well, let's talk about your stunning cover. I just love it. Do you just love it? I love it. I love it. And, you know, it's so funny, right before I got on this interview with you, I got a peek at my British cover and it is unreal. It is just fiery and powerful. So I'm, I'm super excited what various covers are going to look like. This cover just really worked for me because it sort of had all the ingredients. I wanted the painting. I wanted jewels, but I wanted sort of a modern jewels. So if you look at her, she has this Meghan Markle type of bun in her hair, like kind of that loose, you know, knot in the back and also looking in on history. So I, I felt like the art department at HarperCollins really, really got it right. Thank you. Thank you for that. But I, I, I really love the cover as well. The colors complement each other well. I mean, it all just goes together so beautifully. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Is the UK version coming out on March 1st as well? It is coming out in April right now, sort of slated for April. 
Well, I always think it is really fun to see different countries' covers and see how different people have interpreted it. Yes, yes. And, you know, the thing that's so fascinating about that is they choose a cover that is right for their culture, their readers, and it is so interesting to see. I love that as well. But it's also the cover designer's idea, which I just think is so neat. So yes, they're definitely targeting a market and a group of people, but also it's just each individual is going to read a book and have something different in mind. And it's really fun to see how all of that translates. Exactly. Well, are you working on anything at the present that you'd like to share with me? Yes, I am actually. Um, So as you know, it's very hard to work on a new book while you have a new one that's coming out because all the time it's stop and start where, you know, my editors will say, okay, we here's the next version to edit and to look at the edits. So I'll have to put the new one aside and then work on the edits and then reread it again and go back to it. So it really is at this point kind of a stop and start. But, you know, every time I try to pull away from World War II, it pulls me back in. So I'm working on a story about an actress with a secret past that connects to World War II. It's really fun to sort of write it from you know, she was an actress back in Europe, too. And then things obviously happened during the war. And then she left her past behind and became a famous actress here with a whole made up past that everyone bought it. And there's a, a young woman who wants to do a bio, you know, a documentary type on her. And, and now the truth is coming out. And uh, so it's been fun to write. That sounds really good. Thank you. Thank you. Now, you do a really fun thing on Instagram, Carpool Karaoke. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Uh, Yes. Um, So it's been sort of just, you know, as authors, uh, you know, social media is a big way to get our our books noticed and out there and, you know, all of that. And so I thought, you know, what if I could, you know, I have three daughters and they're all in their 20s. But I thought, you know, wouldn't it be great as authors to be able to give back to Generation Z, Gen Z, and kind of give the advice that all the things that we know now and, you know, sort of that what would be the one thing you would tell your younger self? And so this was a perfect connection to Woman on Fire. And as I mentioned, Jules Roth is a 24-year-old journalist. So for me, you know, what would I tell Jules Roth if I could? And so it was so interesting when I pitched authors on it, I just kept getting so much interest. So at this point, I have 62 authors and I do a weekly gig and try to coordinate it with maybe if that author, that particular author has a book launch or something really special happening. So um, this is, it's been about six weeks of it and I'm going to be going, it's going to be a year long campaign for sure. And basically, I introduce Woman on Fire and I say, how, what does it take to become a woman on fire? What one thing would you tell your younger self? And then the author, whoever it is, talks about that in a short video. So we, it's, it's been really fun and really widely received. I'm, I really enjoy doing it. So I'm, I'm just happy to be doing a promotion that means something to me and that I feel like it does benefit someone else as well. I love it. The couple that I've watched so far are a ton of fun. Thank you. Well, what about what you've read recently that you really liked? Okay. So I have thought about that. And, you know, obviously I have a lot of friends, their books. So I, I thought, you know what, why not? Because I always say there's room on the shelf for all of us. Why not talk about the books of those who are on my pub day and who are near my pub day? 
So a fabulous book, Sisters of Night and Fog, Erica Roebuck. She's brilliant. And her book is also coming out on March 1st. So that's a book that I've loved. I read it. Another one is Elise Hooper's. These are both historical fiction, Angels of the Pacific. And it's coming out, I believe, a week after mine. Fabulous. You know, it has to do with nurses and World War II. And it's wonderful. I'm also uh, doing a book gig with a writer named uh, Erica Katz. And she has a book coming out very soon called Fake. And it has to do with art and art forgery. And I thought that was a great uh, connection. And lastly, the one that I just finished, and I'm sure you loved it as well, was The Paris Bookseller by Carrie Mayer. And it's brilliant. And um, it all takes place uh, wrapped around how Shakespeare and company in Paris came to be and James Joyce, Ulysses and all the people around, you know, in the 1920s, which I'm convinced I must have lived there in my last <laughs> life as a painter because I keep coming back there, you know, to it and I keep writing about it. But those are some fabulous books that are out there and are launching very soon. I love Shakespeare and Company. I've actually been there a number of times and it's such an interesting bookstore and I didn't know all of its history. And then I didn't know about James Joyce and his book and all the publication problems. And so I just felt like I learned all these little details that I probably should have already known, but didn't. And so it was a really fun one. And I love Elise Hooper. I cannot, we actually read an early draft of this book. Yeah. And so I got the new one and I've got to read it, but I haven't yet again to see how it's changed. But she's just delightful. She is. And she's so sweet. And you know, all the authors that I mentioned, Ed, they're, we're just, you know, we all know that our books are coming out at the same time and we're just supporting each other because that's what feels good and it feels right. So, um, yeah, Elise is great. And so this is going to be very interesting. I feel like it, it's happening so soon, all of it. And, you know, obviously I have every emotion, you know, excitement and nerves and how's it going to be? But I'm really excited to, you know, bring this book to light for sure. Absolutely. And March 1st is a huge pub date. I just couldn't believe how many books were coming out that I was reading and enjoying. It's just funny how that works sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for joining me in the Thoughts from a Page podcast. I really enjoyed talking about Woman on Fire and I can't wait for everybody to read it. Oh, thank you. And I love being here and I love your podcast. And thank you for all you do for authors. I mean, it really is amazing. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From A Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed today can be purchased at the Conversations From A Page bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time.
Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.